Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing outstanding, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an episode for you on a hot topic, which is the use of patches in the augmentation of rotator cuff repair. Now, patches have been in use in rotator cuff repair for over a decade, so this isn't new, but it has historically been technically challenging, and thus has really failed to catch on for most surgeons. However, recently, multiple patches have been released with applicators and newer methods of fixation that can make placement quicker. However, these patches are thinner, so it's unclear if they offer the same benefits that have traditionally been described with thick patches. So in the backdrop of this changing landscape, we've invited two experts on to discuss the current indications and techniques for patch augmentation and rotator cuff repair. So first, from Tulane University in New Orleans, we have Dr. Michael O'Brien. Mike, welcome to the podcast. How are you, Peter? Thanks for having me. Well, we're so glad you could be here with us. And next, from the Stedman Philippon Institute in Vail, Colorado, we have Dr. Peter Millett. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Rachel. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Okay, so this remains a controversial topic, and I've invited both of you on because I know both of you are phenomenal arthroscopists with the seals to make even the largest cuff and the thickest patch make look like easy walk in the park. So this allows us to really take the difficulty factor kind of out of the equation. And then with that disclaimer, I'm hoping both of you can tell me, you know, what role patches play currently for you in the management of cuff tears. So let's talk first about primary cases. And I'm hoping, Peter Millet, you could talk to us. What are what are the primary cases for you that get a patch? Who's the patient who, as a first-time surgery, you're adding a patch? Uh, well, I for me, I, I don't typically use uh, patches as first line unless there's really severe tendinopathy. Um, I call them tendinopaths, where the tendon is really a, a poor quality. But it would be extremely rare in a first um, in a first primary case for me to use a patch. There might be a rare instance where I would use an augment, but it would be extremely unlikely. Now you say tendinopath. Is that like you you're looking at the pre-op MRI and deciding that, or is that something where you're in the operating room, you're placing your stitches, you're realizing they're pulling out, and you're thinking we need the patch now? Yeah, it's. Uh, it's looking at the tendon directly and looking at the quality and making a subjective assessment of it. Um, the tendon frequently has a lot of um, fibrillation. There's a lot of fenestrations in it. It's just a really poor quality collagen. In those cases, I think adding in um, a patch may be a benefit. Okay, then Michael Bryan, same question for you. Are there, are there primary cases where you're using a patch? And in your mind, who is the primary patient that gets a patch? Yeah, thanks. I think this is great because I use them quite often. And uh, so I think this will generate a lot of good discussion because probably between the four of us, there's wide variability in how often we use it. So I've gone to probably in the last three or four years, adding augmentation to any massive tear primary surgery where I'm worried about healing. So someone with 
advancing age who's over 70 or medical comorbidities like diabetes, high cholesterol, kidney disease, uh, a smoker, or also in those tendinopathy ones like Peter mentioned, where when you look at the preoperative MRI, the tendon looks kind of thin and maybe they have some grade two atrophy and you're a little bit worried about the healing potential. In those cases, um, I don't hesitate to add one and probably do once a week. Um, and now the one I'm using is the the bovine collagen bioinductive implant. So just to make it as clear as possible, that's the Smith and Nephew Regenitin. And I am, full disclosure, a consultant for Smith and Nephew. Um, but we can get into this a little more. That's because I believe in it. And I think we've had some good success with good healing rates using that implant in those situations. Let me ask both of you as a follow-up to this. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I've been using a patch more and more for primary primary cuffs too, as I think about the risk factors, there's some renewed or new interest in the rotator cuff healing index or the ROHI score, et cetera, with some of the risk factors that Mike mentioned. When you have the primary cuff and you feel that an augment is necessary, how do you justify the cost um, to, to your surgery center, to your hospital? Mike, let's start with you on that and then we'll go on to Peter. Yeah, and they don't want me to use it at our surgery center unless it's a work comp case and it's pre-approved. It's a little bit easier at the hospital where we keep them on the shelf. And my justification is the addition of this implant uh, is cheaper than a second surgery. Um, that's kind of my personal justification, you know, because I think patients really don't know what exactly it is we're augmenting or not with them in their shoulder. So my thinking is adding this implant, if I can get it to heal, is going to eliminate the cost of a second surgery. And we all know that probably our best shot at these of getting them to heal is the first shot. So that's where I've kind of gone to being a lot more liberal with the use of it. And Peter, what about you, especially in your practice, part of a private private practice um, where you know, with your surgery center versus working in your hospital, there may be some differences in terms of implants and costs. How do you how do you decide or how does cost weigh into your decision to use a patch for a primary cuff? While you said you don't use them that often when you do, does, does cost weigh into that? I mean, I always do what I think is going to be the best for the patient. And um, the hospital administrators really haven't had any problems with that. So um, if I feel that a, a patch is necessary, then I've always just used it. Uh, same thing for a number of anchors. We just do what's what we feel is appropriate from a surgeon perspective and at best uh, optimizing the biomechanics and optimizing the, the biologic environment. So uh, really, it, it doesn't really, uh, I mean, I feel there's an, some obligation not to overuse or waste uh, products, but um, certainly do what I think is is in the best interest of the patient that's that's present before me. I agree with Peter on that one. Um, you know, in, in the hospital setting, I've never really had the hospital come to me and ask me why I'm using this implant or when I'm putting it in. It's more of a discussion at um, a surgery center, uh, but at the hospital, it's luckily never really come up. Now let's talk about revisions where, you know, hopefully you never have to operate on, on a revision or never have to do a revision cuff, but they do come up from time to time. And especially for the two of you, you know, world-renowned shoulder surgeons, your referral practice probably has a lot of revisions. Are you doing a patch on, 
excuse me, are you doing a patch on every revision? Just some revisions? How do you decide? Peter, let's start with you on that. Yeah, I use a I use a patch if I'm going to do a superior capsule reconstruction. If the um, if the rotator cuff is technically irreparable um, and it's a young patient, I can get a balanced force couple with the axial force couple, and they don't have arthritis and they have a flexible shoulder. Then I think that they're probably a good candidate for an SCR if they're under 65 or they're physiologically young. Um, so in those cases, I would use one. Um, we looked at our data. I started to think the, the results from our SCRs were, were actually quite good. And we started to think we should, I should use patches, uh, more often. Um, and I compared the results of our SCRs versus the results of primary repair by whatever means were ne necessary, meaning margin convergence, et cetera, all, all the releases you could do. And Actually, interestingly, the results um, from just doing whatever was necessary in repairing their tissue were um, as good, if not slightly better, and with a lower revision rate than using a patch. So my first preference is to try and just repair their native tissues. If I can't do that, then I'll, I'll go ahead and use an SCR. Um, there is a rare instance where you have patients who have uh, type 2 tears and they have a short tendon but a healthy muscle and in those cases i will um i will do an augmentation i'll get the t native tendon down to the footprint sometimes i'll medialize the footprint a little bit by five five to seven millimeters uh and repair the the residual tendon and then put an augmented patch over the top of it um, to try and improve the biomechanics and to try and improve the biology of the of the repair so those would be the, the principal indications in, in my practice. Mike, how about you? How do you approach the revision case? I, I add a biologic augment to almost every revision. And so if it's uh, a repairable tendon that looks like it failed at the bone tendon junction and I have enough tendon to get a good repair, then I'll add a biologic augment on every one of those. Um, I'm same as Peter on the type 2 failures where it tails of the tears of the muscle tendon junction, you have a very short tendon stump, then I'll medialize and usually just do a single row repair. And on those, I'm gonna put a dermal allograft over the top because the, the biologic augment provides biology, but it doesn't have any structural properties. So in those type two failures, I want something a little bit stronger. So then I'll add a, a dermal allograft over the top of the repair. Um, I don't do many SCRs anymore because I found that it it just doesn't work well in my hands. So I think I'm not good at that surgery. And I would get like 50% good results, 50% bad results, and I couldn't really predict. So um, I've gone to using, if it's just an irreparable supraspinatus, I'll slide the biceps out and do like the biceps SCR, the anterior cable reconstruction. But I do very few... Um, straight SCR, superior capsular reconstructions now, because it just never worked great for me. Can I follow up with you on that, Mike? So so I just want to make sure I understand. So you would say that for you, the bioinductive or the thin patch, maybe we just label it the thin patch for now, yep. is something you really only use if you can get the tendon all the way laterally back to the lateral edge of the footprint, and you can get like a nice double repair, then you put the patch over the top. 
Yes. I mean, for the most part, yes. There are times where it's a normal tendon length, but if I'm worried about the tension on the repair, I'll just do a good single row repair and then still put the thin patch over the top. Um, the only the times where I'm adding a dermal allograft patch, something with more structural property, is for the type 2 failures like Peter mentioned. And then if it's someone that's had three, four failed cuff repairs and they still have some tissue, but it looks thin and atrophic, then I'll add dermal allograft over the top to try and get something thicker and a little more structural. Did that answer your question? It does, but I want to I want to ask both of you a little bit more about the show type two failure because I think that this is a super interesting phenomenon. And I mean, I, if you read back to the original, you know, the original paper that Cho published, you know, there's a lot of their failures look like this, and it's not. I mean, it's this is not a, a rare way for the cuff to fail. So I want to ask you guys both about this specific case. I know it's not maybe a, the most common case, but when you do this case, so you you both mentioned that you are repairing the tendon you know, at the medial aspect of the footprint, maybe medializing a little bit and then putting the patch over the top. So maybe we could start with you, uh, Peter Miller. When you do that, are you putting separate sutures in the cuff medial to your anchors? Are you passing the sutures from the anchor through the patch? Are you putting more sutures at the lateral aspect of the patch? Or are you just kind of putting the sutures over the patch? Tell us a little bit about your technique for that case. Sure. And uh, the type two tears, um can happen primarily too. They don't always just happen in a revision setting or after prior surgery. Um, I see a number of cases where it just, it tears more immediately and the, there's still lots of tendon that's still on the footprint. Um, so what I do is I put down my medial row of anchors. If there is lateral tissue left, I will usually do um, a mattress type suture uh, from medial to lateral, and then I'll pass tapes through the native um, tendon stump medially. I'll tie the sutures to whatever residual lateral cuff there is, and I usually put one anterior medial and one um, posterior medial anchor, and then I'll tie that down. That kind of reduces it, and the tapes are already passed through the tendon stump. And then I'll put my patch in, and I'll do a bridging technique with tape. Um, over the over the top with the graft incorporated into the construct and it's a typical xbox configuration tape bridging construct um, that i'll that i'll use same question for you mike that tell us a little bit about your suture configuration anchor placement management for that case yeah i think probably very similar to peter i'll usually do two triple loaded anchors um, and within each anchor, I'll pass one suture as a mattress and then bring the other two limbs as simple sutures, uh, medial to the mattress suture. So like a Mason Allen configuration. So I'll do an anterior anchor and a posterior anchor triple loaded with a Mason Allen configuration to get the tendon back down. And then uh, I'll kind of measure the box that I wanna cover with my dermal allograft and then cut it free. And then I, I use a technique very similar to your partner, Bob Tajan, that he's published and has videos on. So I'll use um, tapes uh, through the tendon uh, or almost it's really in the muscle belly more medially. 
and I'll tack it down um, in each corner and then one anterior, one posterior, and then bring it to two lateral row anchors. So I try and cover the entire construct. And so it's independent tapes medially, anterior and posterior, and then to two lateral anchors. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what you mentioned with Bob. I've learned a ton from Bob about how to do this. I mean, I think this case is technically challenging. Oh, it Tell really is. There's, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. These are ones that when when I book it, I'm excited and I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And then the morning of, I'm like, oh, geez, here we go. Because I've had one where, and I've changed the techniques of how I pull it in. Now, um, I usually put all the tapes through the graft and then I pull it in through an advisor portal and start tying it down. But there was one where I tried to pass the tapes through the tissue and then bring them out and pass it through the graft and push it all in kind of like you would with an SCR and my graft flipped on me. And I mean, I think it took 30 minutes to get things untangled. So techniques have gotten a little easier and I think it's helpful to watch videos and read Bob Tashin's article. He's really good at it. Um, but there's definitely a fiddle factor and there can be some suture madness. And a lot of times you're the only one that really knows where everything goes, you know, cause even your assistants can get lost in the fray. So I wanted to follow. So you, so you mentioned you're bringing the patch in from the visors. You're not bringing the patch in from lateral. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm bringing the patch in through a lateral cannula, but to pull it in, I use a passing suture through Navisor's portal to help pull those sutures in, and then it kind of gets them out of the way. And then uh, I pass them through the muscle or tendon to tie it down medially. Yeah. So I, I okay, got it. So your so your combination here is you've got tapes from through the through the muscle, out through the cannula, through the through through the patch. And then in addition, you've got a suture that goes from the visors out the lateral cannula through the patch, and then you pull that suture in addition to, so it gives you kind of a push-pull same time? Correct. All right. Now, I wanted to ask you as well about this case, Peter Miller, because I, so I, I agree with Mike. I mean, this case, I think there's a moment in this case where there's a lot of sutures coming out the lateral cannula. You're trying to get the patch into the shoulder. It's a little bit like, you know, there's, there's a definitely a moment that's anxiety provoking. Tell us, Peter mm -hmm. Minow, what are your what are your tricks for getting the patch into the shoulder? What are your, your what are your tricks for getting through that crux where you're trying to get the patch, you know, through the portal and into a place where it lays down nicely? Well, just just to say, there's a there's a technique article that we wrote in um, Arthroscopy Techniques in 2017 that talks about these muscular junction tears and how to repair them. Um, it was written with uh, Jonas Pogorshelski and, and Chris Cottigan and some of my other fellows and residents. Um, so that might be a good reference for the, for the listeners. But, you know, it, it's hard to slide these graphs down the tapes. Um, so what I've done is if it's an extended, if it's a large patch, <clears throat> meaning like there's going to be three or four medial anchors and I'm going to bridge it over to three or four. I, I oftentimes will do a mini open approach or just make an open incision because there's just, there's too much suture management and, and it can be difficult to get the appropriate tension on the, on the native tendon and then get the patch in, in good position. So in those cases, I'll do an open uh, augmentation, 
But if it's a smaller type two tear and I'm going to put a patch on it, um, what I like to do is actually just measure the patch and I'll pull the patch in just with a passing suture. And then I'll pass all the sutures inside the joint rather than do it ex vivo. And that way I can, it just, once you get it secured medially by going through with a, a shuttling device through the, through the graft, you get it secured down. Um, then it's just like a, fixing a rotator cuff. Typically you can pull the tent, pull the graft laterally, tension it appropriately. Um, I'll put usually a little tagging sutures on the corners, which I can pull out percutaneously just to get it spread out and kind of hold it in a, in a good position. And then I could just bridge it over to a lateral row of anchors. But trying to pass the graph with multiple tapes going through it um, can be very challenging. So I, I just do that in, once it's inside the shoulder and just do them one at a time, like either with a shuttling device, which is my preference, or you can use a, a direct um, passing device. And there's a variety of manufacturers that make those that can go through the, through the, through the graft as well. Now, I just want to add that Peter Millet, you're not in trouble because Peter Chalmers keeps using your full name, Peter Millet. It's just to avoid confusion. But in case any of our listeners are wondering, we're, there's no one in trouble here. So next question, wanted to ask you both. I'm always in trouble. <laughs> not not I'm used to it. this hour. Um, what happens, you know, what happens after the podcast, before the podcast, I cannot comment on. So, so let me ask you both. There's been some renewed interest in autograph sources for patch augmentation, certainly more popular outside the United States for a variety of reasons, cost availability, et cetera. But some renewed interest in fasciolata, using the biceps as an augment, using other autographed tendinous tissues. Um, are you guys using any autographed? What are your thoughts on this? Is the collagen applicable? Mike, let's start with you. Yeah, my only experience is using the biceps and just uh, sliding it, releasing the transverse humeral ligament, sliding it out of the groove to an anchor about one centimeter posterior to the groove. And then bringing the infraspinatus up and tying it to the biceps and the greater tuberosity. I haven't used the biceps masher, so I'm just transposing it out of the groove uh, to kind of the center of the tuberosity and then repairing everything up to it with an anchor and margin convergence sutures. I think um, other autograft options are super interesting, but I have no experience with it. I've never done tensor fasciolata autograft. Um, probably out of laziness where I just don't feel like going to the hip to harvest it. Um, but I'm sure like with Mahata's work that that is superior to probably a three millimeter dermal allograft. So I think it's very interesting, but I don't have any experience with any of it other than the, uh, the long head biceps tendon. Peter, how about you? What are your thoughts on using autograft as a patch? Well, it's everywhere else in the body that we use autographs. Um, they tend to perform better than allografts, but there's clearly some morbidity associated with harvesting fasciolata. I used to harvest them when I did my lat transfers. I kind of moved away from it to minimize morbidity um, and having a separate donor site. Um, and I don't have a lot of experience using autographs in the shoulder. Um, I do think that the biceps, the long head biceps, uh, as a as a potential autograft is intriguing. I don't have a lot of experience using it other than in the lab. Um, so I, you know, I was kind of waiting to see how that goes. It seems like some of the early 
um, cell viability studies show that there are viable cells there and it, it makes, makes sense, um, but I just don't have the experience yet. Okay, let's take that one step further. You know, it sounds like both of you have talked a little bit about allograft. Let's talk allograft versus xenograft. Do you think this matters? Um, you know, again, there are patches in the market now that are bovine collagen instead of human collagen. Let's start with you, Michael Bryan. I'm gonna say your full name so that we can just be equivalent <laughs> and Rachel won't make fun of me. Michael Bryan, what are your thoughts on xenograft versus allograft for cuff patches? Well, thank you, Peter Chalmers. I uh, I think that the current xenograft uh, bioinductive collagen implant, uh, I think is safe. And I think there's 13 studies published on it right now with a very good safety profile. Uh, but historically, that's not the case, right? So historically, xenografts have done poorly and have had a lot of inflammatory reactions and not done well. Um, I cannot explain the difference. I'm sure probably it's in how it's um, machined and manufactured, but I think this current one seems to be safe and doesn't seem to have a high um, complication rate or risk of inflammatory reaction or um, infection. So that's, that's my personal bias. My feeling, this is- What do you think? Yeah. Uh, my- Please My feeling is that it's 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 important not to lump um, everything. Historically, I think um, xenograft use in the shoulder has been associated with inflammatory and uh, immunogenic responses. Um, I had the experience of using the SIS patch when that became available, and saw quite a few inflammatory reactions as a result. I also had the experience um, in my fellowship of using the bovine collagen meniscus implant, which I thought worked, you know, quite well. But the the issue with that was the um, there were some, you know, technical challenges with the the collagen and the durability of it. It would it would cut very easily when you would put a suture through it. So it wasn't really the immune response, but it was just it was just technically difficult to work with. Um, so I, I think it's important not to not to lump, um, you know, all tissues. There's there's there can be autographs, which, or I mean, allografts, which can cause immune responses if they're not processed properly, or if the processing has some type of um, inf inflammatory response associated with it. So I think it's important to look at each individual implant um, for its merits and uh, and understand. Um, you know what the benefits are and what the potential risks are, and the, the certainly the the bovine collagen implant that's being used now um, as a bioinductive implant makes a lot of sense, and most of the data suggests that it seems to be very safe. And you know we just need uh, more data, you know, showing exactly where the best indication is and and what um, you know where it, where it benefits patients uh, most, and that's you know, what this podcast is about, obviously. Okay, so let's take this one further. So there are now on the U.S. market, there's at least one patch that's kind of this synthetic tissue composite, you know, that's got collagen in it, but it's also got these microfilaments. You know, I again, I'm not involved with the development of this patch, but I think it's interesting. I mean, the question is, is that the future? Do you so I'm going to ask both of you on a more general level, not about this specific product, but on a more general level, 
Do you think that the issue we have with our current patches is that they need to be more bioinductive, that they need to be, they need to have more structural stiffness to them, that we need to do more of both? Like, do you think this synthetic tissue composite is the future? Why are we not? What are your thoughts, Peter Millet? Well, I think it's a really interesting um, concept, and people have been thinking about this: how to how to improve the anthesis of the rotator cuff, how to get it to heal without scar. You know, there's three different factors you need: you need a scaffold, you need cells, and you need growth factors to make that that work. You know, can you do it with one, or can you do it with two, or can you do it? With, do you need all three? Um, I, I don't think we know the answer to that. I know that there's been a lot of people who've spent their whole careers trying to figure that out. Um, you know, I, and I think that there's probably, there's, there's different situations we encounter clinically. There's, there's patients who've had a prior failure and have, you know, no, have tissue deficiency. Um, and you know, what do you do in that situation? There's patients who have tissue deficiency because they have a chronic tear and they have atrophy of the tissues. Um, and then there's patients, you know, with, with just poor quality tissue and it's intact. Um, and there's, there's issues that, that occur with the bone or the, the vascular environment, um, you know, and no one really knows what is the most important factor to get the rotator cuff to heal. But I think these, these um, approaches are really interesting. Sometimes we need a, a mechanically uh, strong tissue. Sometimes we need one that will induce a biologic healing response. Sometimes we might need some type of combination on that. And I think it's going to be some type of a combination of growth factor cells and a scaffold, which ultimately leads us to the best solution. What are your thoughts, Michael Bryan? Do you think this combination thing is is the is 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 going to be the key? And if you could just avoid using my full name in your response, it makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> my pleasure, Peter, and Rachel Frank. Um, <clears throat> I think I think a lot along the same lines as Peter on this one because ideally, I think uh, something that has structural strength and can stimulate biologic healing and gets incorporated into the rotator cuff seems like it would be really awesome and maybe even the holy grail. And I think we're all probably a little bit cautious with fully synthetic scaffolds um, just because of some that were tried in the past and we worry about inflammatory responses and immunogenic responses. So um, I'm cautious of fully synthetic scaffolds Ones that are synthetic but also have biologic properties, I find very intriguing and interesting because that would give you some time zero strength. But then if it can also help promote healing and induce some incorporation into the tendon, I think that sounds pretty fantastic. So I think, like Peter said before, time will tell and we just need more data points to make sure, number one, that these implants are safe. Um and that they're effective. And if they can help improve healing rates and improve the structural integrity of our repair, I think that's a win-win situation. So I don't know that it's the future, but I think the idea is very intriguing because I think the ideal patch in my mind would one that one one that has strength or structural properties, but then also helps to induce healing and improve the biologic environment of the cuff. 
So if I could just add a comment, um, we need something which is strong at time zero, but you, if it remains strong, then the tissues won't see any load and they get stress shielded. Uh, we know from some of the work from Lisa Gallitz and others that you need loading of the tendon to occur. If you have absolutely no loading, um, it actually impedes healing. So uh, a fully synthetic graft is likely not to be the answer. It has to be something which is resorbable or, or partially resorbable or somehow um, transmits the load to the tissues because if they don't experience loading, then you're not going to end up with a structurally sound repair. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's <clears throat> the real dilemma is <clears throat> having a type of tissue. You're up about it, Mike, okay? I know. I'm, I'm getting really, really emotional here. <laughs> I'm glad it evoked such a powerful response. <laughs> so something that has that initial strength, but right, as it grows into the tendon or whatever, as it incorporates, it gives up some of its stiffness and shares the load with the tendon. I totally agree. That's kind of my concern with these fully synthetic scaffolds that I'm, I would like to see some long-term data on how they perform. Given the emotional response that we just witnessed. <laughs> I mean, there, like may be some, there may be some benefit though um, to having something permanent there too that acts like a, like a seatbelt when super physiologic loads are, are experienced by the healed tendon that it can sort of prevent um, catastrophic re-tears or, or failure. So there, there may be some benefit for, you know, some permanent filaments or structure, but I think if it's completely synthetic, I, I'm not sure that's the ideal situation. And, you know, there, there is one patch on the market right now that has uh, stretchy. Um, it has kind of elastic properties. And I wonder if something like that, um, might be kind of the correct path because then it can stretch a little bit so it's sharing the load with the tendon. But if the tendon gets stretched to a certain point, then maybe that picks up the slack. I don't know, but I think that's an interesting concept. It's one of the reasons why this is such an exciting time because we have you know, a variety of different options that are actually quite different from one another. And I don't think we really know right now which of them is optimal. And I think one of the things both of you touched on so beautifully is there are reasons to believe that these different routes may be better. Um, so I, I, I would definitely encourage listeners. I mean, this is an area I think where everyone's going to want to pay close attention in the future because one of these is going to be shown to be better than the other. And there is going to be a ways in which we can do this hopefully more easily where you don't have 30 sutures is coming out of one cannula going into a patch where half of them are tapes and you're trying to figure out how to get the patch into the shoulder. And um, so I, I, I want to commend both of you for really touching on reasons why each of these might be great um, and reasons why we, again, hopefully in the future, we'll have a better idea for how to really improve the, the biology and the biomechanics simultaneously. Well Thanks. said. <laughs> Let me ask both of you guys. So when we talk about these patients, particularly those over 60, we talk about the cost of implants, the surgical time, the potential difficulty with recovery and the less than ideal outcomes, particularly following revision rotator cuff repair, but even primary rotator cuff repair in patients over 60 and patients over 70, especially. And many of our listeners are, are exclusively shoulder surgeons. 
and they, they have both an arthroscopy practice, but also an arthroplasty practice. And while the topic of this podcast is not arthroplasty, I do, it does beg the question, why not just do a reverse in these patients versus messing around with a patch or revision cuff, et cetera? And again, it's a bit of a loaded question, but as shoulder experts, if this was your shoulder or your family member's shoulder, and I'm not talking about the 40 to 50-year-old, 50, 50 to 60-year-old with a, a bad cuff or a revision cuff, that's a different story, but I'm talking about the 60-plus and especially the 70-plus, why not just put a reverse in them? Peter, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that's the that's certainly in some ways that can be easier from a surgical perspective, and in some patients that may be the the better choice. Um, we did a decision analysis looking at what age um, or what strategy would be appropriate for a patient with a, a initial rotator cuff tear, and interestingly, with the data available at the time, um, primary um, arthroscopic rotator cuff repair was always preferred. I thought at some age it would flip over to reverse, um, but that wasn't the case. Now for revision, um, it made sense to, to convert to a reverse at a much younger age, but for a primary, it was always preferred to, to try and repair it if it was repairable and they didn't have arthritis. And our data suggests in patients over 70, even with long-term follow-up that if it's repairable and the muscle quality is healthy, the patients will do well with a, with a primary repair. Um, so I think, you know, there's some cases where they might have some arthritis or they have some poor quality muscle and it's early and you might, you know, you might opt for a reverse, which can lead to a good outcome. But certainly the, the, the complication profile from an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair versus a reverse can be quite different. So, uh, I think you have to use good, good sound judgment and look at the patient in front of you and, and, you know, do, do the best operation for that patient. Um, even if it's a more challenging operation being an arthroscopic repair versus a, a primary reverse. So Mike, let me ask you the same question. I, and I, I tend to agree. I'm a bit biased, um, but we go to these meetings, you know, whether it's society or industry or anything in between, and I, I just feel like the the tone is more and more reverse. And when someone says, oh, why would you struggle with a case, even with a patch, just do a reverse, reverses do so well. And I, and I tend to agree with what Peter just said in that do the right operation for that patient, even if it's more challenging, even, even if the recovery is a bit longer or more arduous for that patient early on. Um, and I think this is where patches really do help us in terms of augmenting the biology, especially in those patients over 70. What, what are your thoughts? And are you, are you thinking, nope, let's just reverse them or would rather try the repair in these, these older patients or these difficult cases? No, I, I totally agree with both of you. And I think that Peter had a much better answer than mine because he has data to back his up. Mine is based on personal experience that when you do a primary repair on somebody and even in their mid seventies and they get better and there's many studies that even show, even if they only get partial healing of that tendon, their pain is better and their function is better, even if they don't fully heal the repair. And so I think the, the reverse is a great tool, but it's also an irreversible step. And so if someone has minimal arthritis and a three centimeter tear that's very repairable, I think they're going to do much better with an arthroscopic cuff repair. And I'll even push the envelope a little bit on that and maybe try and fix a cuff in someone who's a little older because I think their function will improve. 
And I think we have to be cautious, especially, you know, as potential thought leaders in this realm, that if we start pushing reverse and everyone over 70 with a three centimeter cuff tear, then we're going to get folks that don't have a high arthroplasty volume that are going to start doing a lot of reverses. And that is not a benign operation. It changes them forever and has a much higher complication profile than an arthroscopic cuff repair. So if they fail their cuff repair, they have a tear and then a reverse might be an option or something else. But if they fail a reverse, either with instability or dislocation or nerve injury, that's a much bigger problem. So I think in someone that uh, has a repairable cuff, just like Peter said, treat your patient individually. And I think they'll do better with a cuff repair. Let me ask one final question for both of you, because you are incredibly smart and you guys do a lot of research, well-published, well-spoken at the podium. You know, Peter Chalmers mentioned there's going to be a patch that's going to be superior. Um, I think I think at some point we will find which of the available patches or future generation patches are appropriate for a specific tear and a specific patient. But one thing I've always had trouble figuring out is how to study this, how to study patches compared to each other. And there's a variety of different reasons why this is so difficult. Namely, it's expensive and, and most companies don't want to do direct head-to-head comparisons and prospective RCTs. But also it's hard to do an RCT with this, right? It's hard to find two patients who have similar demographics with similar tear patterns and similar muscle quality, et cetera. If you guys could design the ideal study to figure out which patch is best, how would you do it? Mike, let's start with you. Well, that's a tough question. Um, I know that for one, there's um, a surgeon, uh, Miguel Ruiz Ibon in Spain, in Madrid, who's doing a two-year prospective study looking at the bovine collagen patch. And he's doing it in all uh, medium and large tears. And they're all fixed with the same transosseous equivalent and half are getting a patch and half aren't. So he's trying to look at the question, does it really affect healing rates? And I think his uh, his one-year interim data showed improvement in the patch group, but his two-year data should be coming out soon. I think there's going to be a lot of trouble in designing that study that you're talking about, Rachel, because the numbers would have to be pretty huge because you would probably need to randomize them equally to repair with no patch and then have an equal number of each patch to really decide which one is best. So I think that would probably have to be a multi-center study with pretty high numbers in order to find anything that might be statistically significant. Or you could just do like Dr. Ruiz Iban is doing and just try and compare one implant to a, a repair alone and see which is better. Um, but that'd be a tough study. It'd be a big undertaking. Peter, what are your thoughts? Any Is there any conceivable way to do this? I, I agree with Mike. I think the numbers needed would be substantial. And I, I still, it's almost like ACL graph choice and sorry to mention ACL on the ASCS podcast, but it's hard Ooh. to do these studies. I know it's, it's hard to do these studies because of the numbers needed and the overall good outcomes when the vast majority of patients, is there a way to compare patch A versus B versus C versus D versus no patch in a way that's going to be technically feasible to do? I mean, it's possible. It's just going to require a huge coordinated effort from a lot of people with differing interests. I mean, it's, as Michael alluded to, it's it's hard to do these studies um, because of the large size, but it's also hard because um, industry doesn't want to compare head to head against 
and find out that their their device, which is approved, is is you know inferior to another device. So that becomes uh, that becomes a challenge to design a study like that. I I think probably the best way to do it. Um, in the order to control the variables is to do it in an animal model. And probably the best model of that would be the, the chronic uh, infraspinatus model in sheep. So you can really have a true head to head comparison where you can control the variables because in, in patients getting those kind of numbers will be challenging. I, re I remember when we were looking at single row versus double row repairs, et cetera, you needed, a, you needed almost 250 to 300 patients per arm um, to really get to really get meaningful numbers to look to have enough power to show whether you know it made a difference in retears. You know, we've looked at our results. You know, I know these have been used in partial repairs, and I looked at my ten-year outcomes of my partial repairs that I did, uh, either an in-situ repair or a takedown and repair. And at 10 years, we had no revisions for retears in the partial repairs, in the partial tears. So it's going to be impossible to say whether a patch improves that outcome as far as a retear. Now, when you look at it for uh, an augmented, there's even more variables that come into play. So I, I think it's going to be very, very challenging to, to figure this out. Um, but it could, it could be done with a lot of cooperation and large numbers and maybe one of the societies can put together some type of multi-center study to look at this you know it was recently done for the for the balloon really for uh, looking at massive um, uh, cuff tears and, and maybe there's some way that that this could be orchestrated but it, it would require a lot of cooperation from a lot of uh, you know differing uh, different groups peter when you get that study up and running i'd be happy to participate <laughs> yeah, you're the you're the PI on that one. <laughs> well, certainly work to be done, and hopefully something the SES could tackle with one of the multi-center study groups. We've, I agree with you both, and we, we've tried to look at this at our own place about how would we design a prospective study, and it is very hard to figure out how you would do that in such a way that it would be fair. Because as you mentioned, there's so many variables, and as you also mentioned, the revision rates are low. And because partial pair works quite well, and that's certainly going to be a piece of whatever you're doing with any patch. I wanted to thank both of you for coming on, and this has been a real tour de force from both of you about the ins and outs of patches, where we are now, where we're going. Um, and I think listeners are going to find this fascinating to try and take their own practices and figure out how best to help patients with these difficult problems. So I really appreciate both your time. Thanks, Peter. And thanks, Rachel, for having us. I, you know, the one thing that, that the listeners can take away and, this wasn't the case um, maybe 15 or 20 years ago is that I think the patches now are safe. Um, it doesn't seem like we're seeing catastrophic issues from the insertion or the devices which are used to put them in. It doesn't seem to compromise future surgeries. Um, we're not seeing in, inflammatory or uh, immune responses to them that are detrimental to the patient. So, you know, this, the safety aspect I think has really been worked out and I, hats off to all the investigators, the inventors and the industry, uh, people who've, who've worked on that. And, you know, surgeons can have confidence that they're putting something in, which is safe. And if they put it in properly, hopefully it will augment the, the healing and improve the outcome for that patient. 
I agree. And I think uh, the the insertion mechanisms are getting more and more user friendly. And each company has different mechanisms of getting your implant in, which I think is easier. So I agree with you, Peter. I would encourage listeners to um, investigate some of these implants and patches and give them a try. And maybe one of you listeners will decide to head up a multi-center study that we can all be a part of. But uh, thanks to Peter and Rachel for the invitation. And it's, a, it's an honor to be on here with a giant like Peter Billig. Well, we want to, again, thank you both so much. We, we uh, hope that this podcast for all our listeners patched up any knowledge gaps on rotator cuff patches. Hope you saw what I did there. Um, that is all the time we have oh. for this podcast. Again, thank you to our guests. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.